Dear listeners, I'm proud to tell you that this episode of the Leading Steep podcast is sponsored by The Ready State. Stay with me for a short message at the break for a special offer and free trial to access the virtual mobility coach at thereadystate.com. Adventure stories, leadership allegories, and wisdom from the world's great adventure guides. This is Leading Steep. I'm Barry Cruz. I'm an old class five guide in the whitewater world and an executive in the white collar world. I'm still learning to be better at both. So I'm interviewing legendary leaders and adventure guides from around the world to learn what they've learned, to know what they know. I call this guide ethos. If you've committed to be a more connected, courageous leader anywhere, this is the Leading Steep Podcast. If you're traveling to the world's highest region, the hottest place on earth or the coldest, or navigating some of the world's angriest seas, you might just consider bringing along Susan Purvis. Sure, she's a guide, but she's also been a geologist, a gold miner, survival expert and instructor, ski patroller and avalanche educator, wilderness medic and expert, a best-selling award-winning writer, and a wonderful storyteller. And she's done all this on seven continents over several decades. In essence, as you and her thousands of adventure professional students know, she's just a whole lot of fun. But these stories and the wisdom she imparts are far better coming directly from Susan. Those high, hot, cold places, by the way, of course, they're the Himalayas, Antarctica, and Ethiopia's Danakil Depression, as I learned along with so much more from Susan Purvis on Leading Steep. Susan, I'm so grateful to meet you and so pleased to have you on the Leading Steep podcast. Thank you so much for taking time for me. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So nice to meet you, Barry. Thank you. Listen, I've read so much about you, and and I'm sure in real life, uh, you've done some extraordinary things in your life, and I would love to hear your whole story. But let's just start with today. What have you been doing this week? And talk to me about what you do on a regular basis. Well, currently, I am an avalanche instructor. I, it's my busy season, and I just flew down to Snowbird Ski Resort, where I'm training an elite military group, which I really can't talk about, but I'm here with them for two weeks. And... Oddly enough, I'm the only female in a sea of men for two weeks. So that's pretty fun. I'm sure there are blessings and curses there, but I want to say that I appreciate your discretion there. These are obviously vital military personnel. And I'm conjuring uh, Kelly McGillis in Top Gun being the only woman in the hangar or Brandy Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty being the only mon- only woman amongst these uh, all, all these studs in this room. So that's you. You're teaching avalanche courses to these military personnel. Oddly enough, probably since I was 18, I've been the usually like one of the few women or the only women in a sea of men. Whether it was university, I studied geology, so there was just a few women creating a outdoor career in the high country of Colorado, where I had my own business. I thought, I guess I, I have some thick skin to hang out with guys. You're used to this. All right, so now that we heard about your course and we'll want to hear more about avalanche safety, let's back up, though. I'd love to hear where you're from and how you became such a strong woman and such a such a, a tremendous asset to the rescue industry. So back back up and tell me your whole story. Where, where did you grow up and, and how did you get into, into outdoor sports? Well, my wilderness was on the southern shore of Lake Superior. My dad was a fisheries biologist and my mom was a stay-at-home 
mother raising three kids. And I just would look at my mom and went, I do not want to be home raising children. So my adventure really came from the big open lake where I'd fish with my dad all the time and we canoed and um, kind of, I grew up skiing, but I really put my big girl pants on when I signed up for a month-long backpacking trip in Montana in the Bob Marshall Wilderness with my friend's family. And I, I really had to hold my own weight. I couldn't lean on my mother to, you know, tie my shoe or fetch me some milk. And um, if I was going to be successful, I had to learn about sharing teamwork, following instructions, being a successful member of a team to get us up and over snowy mountains and across rivers. How old were you when this experience happened, Susan? 15. So I, I think I was just a freshman or a sophomore in high school. So for a month you were out there. Yes. With, you know, we were in our blue jeans, flannel shirt, <laughs> boots that were new, dug into your calves, the marmots ate your boot because you didn't put them in the tent. We were covered with ticks. All the things that you teach people not to do now in your courses, right? Wearing the wrong clothing, wearing the wrong gear and all that. How did we all survive back in the 70s? <laughs> For so many reasons, right? So then after that experience, then my sense was that you began to study the sciences. You began to spend more time outdoors. Yeah, I, I wasn't a very good high school student and I had very few mentors. And a lot of us young women were lost. We didn't have any role models. We didn't aspire to really be or do anything with our lives because what were our choices back in the seventies, you know, a secretary, a school teacher, a nurse. And I went, Oh, like, you know, I could have gone to the university of Michigan, but I said, I'm going back to Montana. And it was there. I, I showed up at college when I was 17 and I joined a program called the school, uh, the wilderness and civilization program where we went out exploring in the mountains, taking philosophy classes and English literature and forestry and exploring the mountains and what they mean in the wild lands and how we can preserve them and, and make conservation a part of our life. Wow. What a valuable program. What a time for you to, to have found that. I mean, it seems like to me that changed the whole trajectory of your life from, from that moment. As a matter of fact, we just had, I went down to our 40th reunion of the program. It's still going strong at the University of Montana. So they've been, you know, and because of this program, they've created some beautiful leaders in the conservation movement because it affected or influenced these young students. Whatever your age, you're young for that age because you're still doing hardcore stuff in these teams of elite people. I, I'm imagining you standing and teaching all of these pretty tough folks and telling them what to do and explaining things to them that are probably going to keep them alive. Just to get your audience up to speed with, you know, what I do, I ended up becoming a geologist. I actually started exploring for gold in Montana. And eventually my husband at the time and I moved on to manage a gold exploration operation in the Dominican Republic. Now at the time we could live anywhere so we chose to have one foot in the snow at Crested Butte, Colorado, which our home was at 9,500 feet, and we would commute to sea level, and I had my other foot in the mud. 
And I was living this split life between looking for gold, which was not my passion. Really, I had so much empathy for the people and the the campesinos, and they were so poor. And we were walking through their property looking for gold, and something was not right in my life. I thought, I, I'm doing it for money, but that is not where my heart is. And I had to figure out how to find purpose and passion. And it wasn't in the mud in the Dominican Republic at that time. I have to say I was kind of in the shadows of my husband. He was the boss. I wasn't that good of a geologist. He was the expert. And prior to meeting him, I was a strong, independent woman. And so what I learned is that we go through life sometimes being leaders and then we become followers. And I knew I had to move out from under his wings and create my own business and my own life. But I didn't know what it was at the time until something very specific happened. So tell me that story. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your story about breaking out and becoming a leader on your, in your own right and leading your own life, right? Leading your own destiny. But I'm fascinated to hear what, what was this watershed moment? When I went skiing, just like you with boating or, you know, same with me with boating, I came alive on my skis and in the snow. So that's one of the reasons why we moved to Crested Butte, because I wanted to be able to ski on my days off. Well, I decided I should just be on ski patrol. Now, it's like a world-class ski area with, you know, 50 avalanche paths on the mountain. I grew up on a hill in the Midwest with 600 vertical feet. And I just marched in there and said, I'm going to be on ski patrol. <laughs> so for folks who haven't been to Crested Butte, though, I've been to Crested Butte. It's a paradise. It is an absolutely fantastic adventure town. Tell our listeners what it's like in Crested Butte, because it's a fabulous place. Yeah, it's kind of like a fortress. There's, it's surrounded by, you know, three sides with these giant mountains rising up to 12,000 feet. And there's only like one road in in the winter, and you have to go back out the same way. So you're in this like little nest, and they get some of the biggest snowfalls. So you're in this winter environment. It's very cold, super high, and there's only like a thousand people there. But Crested Butte is, is known for pretty hardcore skiing, right? A lot of off-piste and pretty hardcore skiers go to Crested Butte to really challenge themselves, is my understanding. It's where the extreme skiing started and the extreme skiing competitions. And Interestingly enough, not only was I working on ski patrol, but I was also working at the medical clinic. So I got to see all <laughs> those people come in broken and busted, Ugh. you know, hucking off these huge cliffs. So I had the school of hard knocks being in that town because I learned medicine. I learned about avalanches. I learned about ski patrol. I got to work on a lot of patients. That is where actually I decided to get a, a black lab puppy and I wanted to train it to save lives in avalanches. So as I understand it, you're in the Dominican Republic, but you're also splitting time in Crested Butte as well. How, how did that work? Well, it was challenging and I knew I had to, I was 33 years old, I had to bust a move. I didn't want to be a gold exploration geologist because it was dangerous. Our lives were being threatened. As you know, you've been rafting in these remote places. People come up to your door, you know, with guns and say, give me all your gold because that's what they think, you know, we have. I lived in fear down there. So I needed to change 
my life. I can imagine. I've seen Gold Rush on Discovery Channel, I think, or something. And these people are going through terrible stuff all the time, especially when they seem to go international to try to find gold. So I'm conjuring this in my mind that this is a deeply challenging and stressful lifestyle. Yeah, I guess we could have had a reality show back then, right? <laughs> I was going to say you could have been on Gold Rush before all those guys were. You had, a, you had a great story happening. So what I decided to do is I told my husband, I said, I'm, I'm going to be a ski patroller. So I went to a ski patrol school. And while I was still working in the Dominican Republic, and I learned on the first day of ski patrol school when it was snowing, it snowed like 80 inches during this storm cycle. And they said, did you hear about that avalanche that happened across the street six years ago? And I'm like, no, an urban avalanche came down and plowed through the condos and buried three toddlers that were outside playing on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Oh my gosh. These kids weren't even from Crested Butte. They were from Texas. While the parents were putting the luggage in the shuttle bus to bring them back to the airport, out of nowhere, this avalanche came down and all three children were buried. And I'm oh leaning gosh. in, least listening, and I'm like, oh, so then what happened? This happened right across the street from this world-class ski resort? And they go, yeah. And so People just showed up with pool hooks and whatever they could find to try to find these buried kids. And they found two of the toddlers within the first six minutes. They were blue. They weren't breathing. And so rescuers, the ambulance people did CPR and they came back to life. Who knows why they survived, right? Because they were only four and six years old. Just great care and, and immediately found within six minutes, as you mentioned, right? Yep. And then the third kid they couldn't find the third toddler and so they said well we had an avalanche dog and the avalanche dog deployed and I'm like no really you know I didn't know much about avalanche dogs and I said what happened and they go well the dog didn't find the toddler and I'm like are you kidding me isn't that the dog's only job how come you know I didn't know anything I'm like how come I kept screaming how come the dog couldn't find the toddler and the answer they gave me wasn't good enough and it was in that moment I thought, hmm, what if I got a dog and trained it to save a life? And at that moment, I vowed to never leave anyone behind. I didn't know anything about avalanches. I didn't know anything about ski patrolling. I didn't know anything about moving through avalanche terrain. And now I made myself a big promise. So you wrote a book about this. You got a dog. I, I read a bit of the book about Tasha, right? About your dog, Tasha. Tell me the story about that. Well, I got Tasha. I didn't know how to train a dog. I just thought, well, if my dog loved me, it would do what I'd tell her to do. But, oh, she was probably as stubborn and independent as I was. <laughs> I describe her as the temperament of a, an NFL linebacker. So stubborn and, and really difficult to train. Paint a picture for us. What kind of dog was she and, and what color? How big? She was a little black lab female. And she looked like a little linebacker. She was stocky. Everybody said, how come your dog's so fat? And I'm like, come <laughs> she, on. She's a snow she's dog, She's just right? stocky. Yeah, she got short little legs, big wide, you know, paws that could, she could just plow through the snow. And she was good. So I, even though she was naughty, probably naughty like me, I trained her to be a really good search dog. She was eat, would either find a person or she would find human feces and eat it. 
So <laughs> she was a good hunter. She knew she knew the job. That's amazing. You and Tasha were called out on rescues then in, in Crested Butte? Yeah, actually through the state of Colorado, we ended up certifying an avalanche, water, wilderness, and we worked crime homicides for, we were that good. And the reason why I got into, we call it human remains, is that most people you do find out there in the wilderness on a search and rescue call, nine times out of 10, when they call in a dog team, it's usually for a deceased person. For recovery as opposed to a, to a find. Well, yeah, or they're, we were going to find it, but they're going to be dead. And the reality is, you know, I was naive to all this. You know, most people don't survive avalanches, you know, when they're completely buried. But I thought, oh, my God, if we just, if we could save people. But by the time a dog team's called, it's often too late. That all happens pretty quickly. I don't know much about avalanches. I'm, I'm guessing our listeners may not know either. Tell us the high points of, of what happens in an avalanche and, and how it becomes such a dangerous situation. Think of a triangle, and each side of the triangle is kind of the ingredients for an avalanche. You need to have be an avalanche train over 30 degrees. The other side of the triangle would be you need to have a snowpack that has the right ingredients for avalanche failure, so what we call a strong layer over a weak layer. And then on the bottom of this triangle, you, you need a trigger. You need the human to step onto that unstable snowpack in steep terrain, and the whole mountain's going to slide down. Got it. So it could be anything, but it could be a loud sound, as we, or it could be a, an explosive that a ski patroller throws or something along those lines. An animal can trigger it. So actually, it's interesting we're talking right now because this has been like the worst avalanche season in a long, long time. Probably because of COVID, people are getting out. They don't want to be at ski areas. And, you know, it's like one avalanche fatality after another. I think we're up to like 34 right now in the United States. Wow. And is this having anything to do with weather patterns as well? Is you have wet snow sitting on top of dry snow or vice versa? Yeah, the climate's changing. There's more people on the planet. There's more people, you know, actually most of the backcountry gear has been sold out this year. Same with bicycles and rafting gear and everything else. I mean, it's been astonishing. It's, I think that's a good thing. People are getting outside, right? But also with the result that you're seeing more avalanche fatalities than you had in some time, right? Yes. We just had a couple of deaths where I, I'm from in Whitefish, Montana, recently. Backing up then to, to where you had Tasha, you had this dog, you got seriously involved in avalanche rescue and search and rescue, and then you became a teacher at that point then? You started teaching these classes as well after having trained yourself and become trained in this, in this science? So what happened is in 1995, I, I was on ski patrol, and a orthopedic surgeon showed up in Crested Butte. He was a rocket scientist. He was ready to go into space when the Challenger blew up. And he wanted to, he became an orthopedic surgeon instead. And he came up to me one night because I was on search and rescue. And he said, how would you like to work at my clinic? I'm like, okay. Sounds interesting. You've tried just about everything else you wanted to try, Susan. <laughs> yeah, because if I'm going to be good, I need to know about medicine too, right? I admire your, your, your ambition there. The quiver, right? I have to learn about everything. And he would bring in practitioners because he would actually operate over an Aspen. So here's where I'm going with the story. So I met one of my most influential mentors, Jeff Isaac, on my second year working at the clinic. And he came from Maine and he'd been teaching wilderness medicine 
15 years before I met him. And he said, how would you like to be a wilderness medicine instructor? And I'm like, that sounds cool. I'll do that. So he and I worked together for seven years. He trained, you know, between my working at the clinic, ski patrol, and having Jeff as a mentor. Shortly after, I opened up my own company called Crested Butte Outdoors, where I started teaching wilderness medicine courses around the world and to almost everybody. That's amazing. And so this, I think some of my rafting friends have this certification as wilderness first responder. Is that right? That's right. It's a standard for most guides. It's a five-day course. Right now, I'm thinking, Susan, that when we do these expedition trips, like you might be one of the world's best people to have on these trips, whether that's in the snow or on on whitewater or anywhere else, you have uh, this incredible experience. Well, you know, one of the things you'll say in my bio is that I've been to the hottest, the coldest, and the highest places on the planet. And I've been there in the capacity as a wilderness medicine specialist. So for someone who never went to medical school, for someone who studied rocks for a living, now I, I was good at what I did. And now I'm getting called around the world to either be medical support or to teach programs to indigenous cultures, which is really where my passion is, probably from my time in the Dominican Republic. I had so much empathy. All people need is just a little education and you give them power. And I love to empower people either through medicine or whatever I'm teaching. The list of places that it appears you've been is astonishing. So Walk me through this again. The coldest, highest, hottest places on the planet. So the coldest, that's Antarctica, right? Yes. Check. You taught classes in Antarctica. No. Actually, I went as a wilderness medicine specialist. The most recent trip I did was I went with a team of 13 people to fix and recover Lydia. Now, Lydia is not a human, but a DC-3 that had crashed. I was with a group of Canadian mechanics, Ken Bork Air. We flew through South Africa, Cape Town, over to the Russian base. And from there, flew to the crash site. Because the Antarctica Treaty says you can't leave your crap behind. So they either had disassemble it, which would have been like $8 million, or they brought in a, a select team and they fixed it in the field, we were 45 days in tents on a glacier, and they flew that plane all the way back to Calgary, Canada. I know this airplane. I'm a, in addition to all these other things that I love, I'm, I'm a big planes fan. I'm a big airplanes fan. We grew up, grew up pretty close to the Oakland airport, so I used to plane spot all the time. But a DC-3 is a classic. It's a tail dragger, right? It's a, probably that, even that plane was built in the 1940s, I'm guessing, maybe early 50s, but probably the 1940s. And they fixed this thing on the ice with you there, supporting them from a, a medical perspective. Yes, that was, I got paid to be down there to make sure, you know, if something happened, I could take care of them. Now, I'm, I am an EMT. I used to say I'm just an EMT, an emergency medical technician. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physician assistant. But I had the Batman phone line to um, the University of Denver Health, where I had a physician advisor if I needed to do something for somebody. But fascinating experience. How long were you there? We were on the ice for 45 days. During the, the, the summer months there then or? Yes. So we had 24 hours of daylight 
we were actually kind of living like kings because we had air support. So we'd get resupplied and we'd have steak and it was pretty plush. Pretty bold, though, these people flying this crashed airplane off the ice. Well, what I'd like to do in your notes, I will link the video we made of the repair of the DC-3 down there because it's a pretty... I, I have a copy of it so I can share it with your audience. Yeah, we'll definitely put it in the show notes because it sounds like a fascinating story. This episode of the Leading Steep podcast has just one exclusive sponsor, and it's an easy one for me to tell you about. The Ready State was founded by my friends, former guides and steep leaders themselves, Juliet and Dr. Kelly Starrett. You're going to meet them in a few weeks on this podcast, and you'll be just as enamored with them as I am. Kelly is a world-renowned physical therapist, author, and speaker who's helped athletes with household names from every major sport, including the NFL, NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball. He's worked with Olympic gold medalists, CrossFit champions, ballet dancers, and the military. You may have seen him on 60 Minutes, Outside Magazine, and in many other outlets, and he's featured in the Tim Ferriss bestsellers The 4-Hour Body and Tools of Titans. Kelly's created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach at TheReadyState.com. I'm using it myself to get ready for an ambitious year of Class 5 Whitewater. Now, we won't all have access to Kelly the way elite athletes do, but the Virtual Mobility Coach gives you tailored access to find a solution to what ails you. It walks you step-by-step step through Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve your range of motion, improve performance, and get in prime shape for whatever challenges you've got ahead. If you're in pain, you can pull up a diagram of the human body, click on what hurts, and from there, get a customized regimen to help find relief. If you are working out or playing a sport, Virtual Mobility Coach offers all sorts of pre- and post-exercise mobility sequences for more than 50 activities. Right now, The Ready State is offering Leading Steep listeners like you a discount. First, you can try the Virtual Mobility Coach risk-free for two weeks without paying a penny. If you decide to continue, you can get 10% off using promo code STEEP10. So again, all you have to do is go to thereadystate.com and when you check out, use the discount code STEEP10 to get 10% off for the life of your membership after your 14-day free trial ends. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, The Ready State. So the other trip to well, I've been to three to Antarctica three times, three different places. But the the middle trip was I was called down to fly to Punta Arenas, Chile, to get on the SS Gould, which is the flat bottom icebreaker, three hundred feet long, in the middle of their winter through the Drake Passage, where the waves can get up to sixty feet tall, and I'm in a flat bottom boat. Wow! And there's eighteen of us, and I'm the medic on the ship and so I went to the the medical room and there was all this stuff you know like it was pill form shampoo form powder form soap form I'm like what is this like what is this thing I've never heard of before and so I googled it and it was to get rid of lice right because boats are filled with lice it sounds like another pleasant experience you're all about going hardcore places or crabs, what lice are, you know the difference between lice or crabs? I can't tell you, but I feel like I'm going to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> tell me. It's where the little creatures are on your body. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to edit this out. <laughs> but if not, our guests, our listeners will learn something. <laughs> yeah. So then moving on. So to the hottest place, can you guess where that is? I mean, I could make a couple of guesses, the Sahara Desert, perhaps, or perhaps Death Valley in, in the United States. Tell us. It's in Ethiopia in the Danakil Depression, where the triple junction of three tectonic plates that are separating, and there's active volcanoes. Urta Ali has got the largest magma chamber. But I was actually hired to be the wilderness medicine specialist and talent for a television documentary on how people and animals live in the hottest place on earth. So we were traveling with the Afar warriors and their camels to the salt mines, which ended up airing on the BBC and Discovery Channel. We'll have to put a link to it if there's a video for that as well. I was taking a look at the picture gallery on your site, cboutdoors.com, which is your, your educational organization. And it's really apparent you've been a lot of places in your life, Susan. It's pretty extraordinary. How many continents? Five continents? Six continents? You have a a Antarctica, so maybe six? Seven continents, you've been to all seven. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Remarkable. What do you spend most of your time on these days in terms of the uh, the classwork that you're doing? Is it a lot of the ed avalanche education or, what do you, or wilderness first aid? What are you doing most of? You know, it's seasonal. The winter, say from December through... March, I do avalanche education. And then, as you know, people are starting to get into their summer jobs. So all the rafting companies I train, I, I've i trained everyone from the Secret Service to the, you know, the FBI to housewives to flight surgeons and everybody in between. Canoe camps. I, I do have my favorite clients that I see regularly. So you were a guide for a short time, though, as well in your career, right? Did I, did I read that you were a hiking, maybe cycling, skiing guide? I have been a guide of many things. I want to brag on this one. I want to hear it. We're talking to guides. We're talking to guides and leaders, so I want to hear it. Brag away. Right? Probably the most important thing I've ever done was right out of college with my geology degree. I couldn't get a job, so I was asked to go be a survival instructor in the desert. It's like 21-day trip. You get a wool blanket, a 1970s army poncho, a can of peaches, because that's going to be your cooking can, a little bit of rope, and a couple cups of rice and beans. And off I went with these, what we call hoods in the woods, for 21 days. And we lived off the land. So I learned how to make a coal bed to keep warm at night, you know, to trap little rodents and to fish with your hands. And I, after I did that on and off for, well, I would work a 21-day session. Then I'd go travel the world and spend my $1,000 I made. Yeah, sure. Not spending any money when you're in the desert, right? So you have this $1,000 saved up from the time that you were working. But this was, you, you were saying the School of Urban and Wilderness Survival, right, for two years? In southern Idaho and Arizona. And I, you know, it was probably the most important thing I've done because I, I knew, like, if I knew how to live off the land. I can do just about anything. Remarkable. So you were a teacher and an instructor there, and then you did some other guiding as well? Yes. You know, I'm actually a ski guide right now. <laughs> I'm a part-time ski guide up in uh, Montana at a cat ski operation. I've been a volunteer raft ranger in Glacier National Park and a bike ranger. 
So we have a connection there. My dad was a park ranger. I, you might have heard this in my biography. My dad was a, a high school teacher in the wintertime in the San Francisco Bay Area and a park ranger in the summertime. And I grew up every summer in Mount Rainier National Park, but my dad later worked at Point Reyes National Seashore and Olympic National Park. And he worked in at Glacier for a couple of years, I think three or four years. And he was stationed at St. Mary. So oh. we, yeah, so we were there. So I've been there, been there several times. It's a spectacular place. How old were you when he was at St. Mary's? I was in my 30s. So I would go and spend a week there or spend two weeks there and, you know, go up road to the sun with him and try to avoid the grizzly bears and all that. But it's a really special place. That eastern side of the Divide or Glacier National Park is probably one of the most powerful places that I've been to on planet Earth. Talk to me about that. What do you mean by powerful? Just Well, one... It, there's the triple junction. The triple divide is near there. So what is that? Do you know what that means? Yeah, I do. I do. You should tell our listeners though, right? It's, it's, I mentioned earlier on a watershed moment, right? So the triple divide is pretty important where watersheds are concerned. Yeah, watershed moments. So, you know, it, the continental divide is water goes east to the Mississippi or west to the Pacific. Yep. And then the triple divide goes north to the Arctic Ocean. It's a fascinating place and therefore pretty magical, right? Yes. Also, the the winds that come down on the east side are just ferocious. It's just the sacred land. The Blackfeet Indians are there. I spend time with the Blackfeet. And so, you know, the, the grizzly bears, the wolves, the moose, You, we are not top dog there. That's why I like it. It keeps us on our toes. Where do your programs typically happen? You have to travel a pretty fair bit for your work. Yes, for the past 30, 40 years, I've been traveling for a living. So this is my, I've been in COVID lockdown at my house for a year. This is my first trip. Is that right? In one year, I got on a plane. I went, oh, my God. But I've been traveling consistently for about 30 years, and it was good to stay home. All right. So I was asking you earlier about least favorite places and most favorite places. Well, when people ask me where are my favorite places, you know, that's a that's a complicated question. Like, what do you mean by that? Like landscape or the people or the peace? But I would say it's the high country of Nepal. When you hike like towards Everest Base Camp, and now that I know so many of the students and staying in their little villages in their huts, their stone huts, eating dal bot by a yak dung fire, you know, there's nothing better than feeling so welcome in a home. And then you get up with your backpack and you hike to the next home or the next village. There's no roads up there. It's kind of like being on the water, right? I mean, there's some beauty to that. It sounds really special. So you're planning to go back when when travel restrictions lighten a little bit. You've got some teaching ambitions back there again. Yes, to start up the high altitude medical program again. One of my dear friends said there's just so many companies, Nepali companies starting guiding up there. They have no training. They know nothing. And people, you know, the porters and the, and the guides are dying and, you know, that can all be resolved. It just takes a little money and some hard work to change the culture again. I admire that. You've taught a a lot of folks. How many students do you think you've shared, uh, shared this training with over your time? Hard to say. Yeah. Oh, probably 
I don't know, three or 4,000 people. What do you enjoy doing on your time off? You're, you're an outdoorsy person. Where, where do you like to go when you're, when you're not working, when you're not teaching? The cold, clear waters of Montana. <laughs> because we don't really have permit systems up there. So you can just go. But now you know what? Everybody's moving to Montana and that's about to change. That's happening, right? With the uh, with the pandemic and companies telling employees they can work from anywhere, there's there are blessings and curses. I, I'm I'm sure of it. Some of the mountain towns I think are getting inundated, and again, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's not. I think probably for local folks, it's probably not. I'm sure. One of the things I want to share with your audience is, you know, what have I learned, you know, from 25 years of having my own business and teaching? Well, my mentor Jeff that I told you about. What we teach in wilderness medicine is this, you know, everything we do has risk and everything we do has benefit. Like we want to, you know, ski white virgin powder because it makes us feel good, but we don't really think about the risks or something as simple as we take ibuprofen, ibuprofen for the benefit It's to get rid of our headache, right? But we never really think about the risks. So one of the things, you know, that's left a huge impression on me is everything we do, you should be thinking about the risk versus the benefit from even the partner you pick for the rest of your life to the person you put into your raft or the person you go hiking with. Pick your partners wisely in life. Who are you hanging out with? How do you treat each other? And, you know, from to your business to where you play or who you go to bed with, all that really matters. Sage advice. I think it, it it can make or break your experience. And I have always told some of my young friends that I think you need to travel with somebody to really understand if you're going to be a fit for you, if you're going to be a fit together, right? I mean, traveling and especially in an adventure situation will help you get to know somebody very, very quickly in dealing with money, dealing with stress, dealing with sleep, dealing with physical activity. Yeah. The other thing I teach and what I always think about too, I'm not that much fun to be in the backcountry with anymore because all I do is think about the anticipated problems. As leaders and guides, you know, we have to be thinking, what will I do if this should happen? You know, we're constantly looking at all the horrible things that could happen. Nobody knows I'm thinking about that, but that's all I think about. I'm not that much fun to be around. If I go to the beach, I'm wearing long pants. I got socks on, a long sleeve shirt gloves, a big hat, and I'm sitting there like under the tree going, oh, I can't get that much sun on me. I'm sure you're more fun than you're saying. You got a great smile and it's been fun to be catching up with you. But I take your point though. And you know, I've got two young kids and I, I work in this program called Junior Guides. And one of the things that I say as a guide is that when you're the guide, you're the guide all the time. You got to be constantly on in the class one water and the class five water, you're the guide all the time. And as you are suggesting, you need to be thinking about the risk and you need to be projecting what's going to happen, where you're going to be, what kind of things you're going to face. I'm sure that's very, very acute in, in the teaching that you do around avalanche safety in particular. Yeah. And, you know, it's not even like the big stuff I talk about. It's like the little micro features for like boating. It's the someone who slips and they crack their ankle just getting into the boat. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just a tiny little rollover, a nondescript feature that has, you know, so much tension on that rollover that it's going to break and throw you into a tree that kills people. We often say in our safety speeches on rafting trips that more injuries occur on shore than usually in the boat or than in any other place, you know, that 
every rock is slippery, every rock will move. And so all of these things are, are potential risk and you got to be just really careful about that. And I'm thinking, you know, back on my, these huge expeditions I did where I was the, you know, the medical specialist, you know, like the worst thing that happened is like someone's knife blade slipped and kind of gouged their leg or they have seasickness, but really nothing big has ever really happened on my watch. And I guess that's a, is that, am I good or am I lucky? <laughs> Probably some combination of, of, of both. I'm sure. I'm sure it's helpful and gives people confidence to have a confident person there with you. What do you like about teaching? Tell me about your, your teaching style, Susan, if we're in, in your class, what's, what's that like? I teach with a lot of humor. I like to say, if you're not having fun, raise your hand. Cause I need to know about it. But I teach a lot with case studies and, and photographs and humor that I laugh and tell them all my mistakes, which puts them at ease. Well, storytelling and self-deprecation are both very effective connection tools, I think, right? Yes, yes. The other thing, too, is I love hanging out with the youngsters, the 20, you know, these late teens, 20, 30-year-olds are also, you know, the people that I teach, they, they're motivated, they're exciting, they're ready, they're prepared, and they want to just gobble up all this information. So it keeps me young. I'm hanging out with a lot of youngsters. So it helps me stay active. It helps me stay fit. I think that's fantastic. I, I, I admire what you've said there, Susan, because of the fact that my experience with so many young people has been very positive. And I think young people, millennials and, and the generations that follow are getting a bad name in some way about the things they cannot do or do not do when compared with the things that they can do and do. And so one of the most gratifying things that's happened in this whole experience of producing this podcast have been the, the messages and emails that I've received from young people, from young guides in particular, who are saying that people like you, Susan, are having such a great impact for them as teachers and sharing your wisdom. And, and as you've said, sharing the mistakes you've made, I certainly made plenty to, to be a great teacher as well. But this has been one of the most gratifying things about this whole project is just hearing from young people. So if you're a young person hearing this, I want to I hear from you. Please drop me a note, barry at leadingsteep.com, and I'll share it with Susan. But don't you find this is the case, Susan? Are you having fun with these young young people that you're teaching? Yeah, and I you know, I get phone calls out of the blue or I'll be in an airport and they're like, my motto, I say, when you're dealing with a medical emergency, this is every student who's been to my class for 25 years knows what to do. I say, you go up to someone and say, hi, my name is Sue. Have some goo, which is sugar. And let me put this under you. Get them off the cold ground. They will always know what to do. So I'll be like in Bangkok and all of a sudden I'll hear like, hey, Sue, have some goo. Let me put this under you. And I'm like, oh, it's one of my students. Oh, that's fantastic. I hear it all the time. You make it fun and you make it memorable and you save lives in the process. You want to know the best trick for guides and leaders? Of course I do. We all want to know the best trick. So goo is the equivalent to calories, right? Instant calories. So as guys, guides and leaders, and this is what I try to instill in my class, we have to constantly be eating and drinking and peeing and pooping. Well, pooping maybe once a day, but peeing every couple hours. We as guides and leaders have to have our brain working all the time. We can't afford to get cold and we can't be shivering and we can't withhold water or calories because we're going to bonk. 
And so you have to have quick available calories so that constantly when you're working hard, taking care of a crisis or the weather changes, the guide's got to have a full tank. You can't let your tank get empty ever. So this is hydration and being reasonably well-fed or having some calories. Absolutely. And to not push it so fast that you're sweating and getting cold. Everything should be slow and steady, eating and drinking, and it's no time to be on a diet, right, or lose weight. We have to have, as guides, you have to have your brain working all the time. Which means you have to have fuel and you have to have water, right? Yes. Something that you shared with me before was maybe one of the things that you're most proud of is the fact that you started a business of your own. And as a, as a single woman, as a, an independent woman in a pretty male-dominated field, avalanche safety, rescue, wilderness, first aid, all of that, you started your own business. You went out on your own. Yeah, my advice to men or women, if you're in your 20s, I would start your own business. And it could just be you know, Betty's knitting. Don't worry about it. It Teaches you responsibility, due diligence, accounting, having a plan, a strategy, marketing. How do you interact with people? All of that stuff matters. And, you know, before you know it, if you're good, your clients come back and you're referred and the the work never ends. You have to remember, I, I don't have my work planned out for the next year. I kind of wing it and somebody's always calling, hey, I heard about you. Will you come and teach? Like I just got a call, you know, I trained Ted Turner's ranch hands and cowboys, right? I got three classes for him coming up. How fun. He's the largest landowner in North America. And I get to go hang out with his bison wranglers. I mean, so you never know who's going to call. But when you're good, the jobs will keep coming. So I don't want people to stay home and go, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. It's like, do something. Start a company. Find a mentor. Practice makes perfect. I really admire your courage to have done that and your competence and your passion and your diversification of your skill sets because you've done so many amazing things on seven continents, Susan, which is pretty inspiring as well. Susan, you're an, a remarkable person. Your book actually is called Go Find. I don't know if we talked a lot about that, but I took a look on Amazon.com to see the reviews before we, we spoke and something like 145 reviews for your book, people who love that work. So congratulations on Go Find. People should go find, go find. I think it sounds like an incredible book. Hashtag go find purpose and passion. It was a real pleasure to meet you. I hope we get the chance to share an adventure together sometime, whether that's rafting or whether that's skiing or one of your classes. You, you're just a remarkable person, and I'm thrilled to have met you. Thanks, and be safe out there. Thank you. It's a bit unfair that we can really only scratch the surface when getting to meet people like Susan. I encourage you to look her up, and I will include links in the show notes. Her business is cboutdoors.com, like crestedbutteoutdoors.com. And her author page and the rest of her fascinating biography is at susanpurvis.com, P-U-R-V-I-S, susanpurvis.com. Don't take that from me, though. One of my heroes, Sebastian Younger, wrote this of Go Find. Susan Purvis has written a brave and profound book about the eternally compelling topic of human survival. No one can truly understand the wilderness without going deeply within themselves and perhaps vice versa. Purvis has done both and come back with truths that we can all learn from. Keep telling it like it is, Sebastian. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it widely with friends. Again, subscribe and leave a review on your podcast app. Apple Podcasts has the greatest impact for us. Drop me a line with your suggestions. It's barry at leadingsteep.com or join our Facebook conversation group, Leading Steep Fireside, and be the first in the know on new episodes and giveaways. If you or Susan come rafting with me one day, we'll be paddling my SOTAR. I started my career with the state-of-the-art raft back then, and it's still my first choice today. I write and record this show myself. My wife, Angie, told me it was cool to include the jokes about ocean-going medical issues. The folks at usehatch.fm guide me on every episode, and I use squadcast.fm to connect me with wonderful guests like Susan. I'm trying a brilliant new tool this week called Descript for short solo recordings. Thank you so much again for listening to the Leading Steep podcast. Your response to this whole thing has been a watershed event for me. Thank you.